0: Primary Care Knowledge Boost, managing self-neglect in general
1: practice. Hello and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we're tackling quite a tricky subject, one that I think will probably ring true for many practitioners out there as being some of the harder cases that we'll deal with in practice Um, and it is that of managing patients who are self-neglecting and looking at all the issues that surround self-neglect. Yep, we got in touch with Sarah Khalil through hearing about a talk that she did that was focused
0: on self-neglect as a possible adult safeguarding issue and looking at how to manage cases when people aren't engaging with medical care. Mm-hmm. And then she recruited um, Dr Rebecca Marchment, who's a GP and also the NIM GP for Adult Safeguarding at Salford CCG to come on the episode as well.
1: Yeah, thank you massively to those two. It was amazing to talk to them both. And to orientate ourselves, we used an anonymised and altered case that would illustrate some of the main learning points, um, something similar to those that might be seen in a serious case review. Um, But we have altered the case quite a lot. So it may sound quite specific, but rest assured, we have changed and embellished a fair amount of these details. So we'll be back at the end to talk through our learning points, and we hope you find the episode as useful as we did you'd both like to introduce yourself and then tell us a bit about your background as well in particular how you got involved with safeguarding.
2: Okay so my name's Rebecca Marchman. I am a salaried GP um, and I am also the um, named GP for adult safeguarding at Salford CCG. I got involved in safeguarding really as um, an interest that I've had from medical student days really. Um, It's something that I've found It's particularly challenging for clinicians. It's something that comes up pretty much on a day to day basis, but can be very time consuming and difficult to manage when it does happen. So that was my interest from it.
3: My name's Sarah Khalil. My initial career began in nursing and health visiting many years ago. And then I specialised in the field of domestic violence and later began to lead in adult safeguarding. So I've been working as the designated nurse for adult safeguarding for Manchester CCG um, for at least eight years now. Mm -hmm. And I've specialised in adult safeguarding because I'm really passionate about making people feel safer and making sure that our systems and processes work so that adults can actually feel safe.
1: Yeah, perfect. And so just to kind of orientate the listeners, uh, we're talking about the thorny issue of self-neglect and non-attendance for adult patients in primary care. Um, So as part of this, we'll be talking about safeguarding and assessing capacity. Uh, But to start, why are these issues important?
3: Well, across Greater Manchester, the CCG safeguarding teams became more and more aware of safeguarding adults or domestic homicide reviews where the adults had often missed so many appointments or they hadn't been seen by a health professional for some time, despite having underlying needs. And in some of these cases, the cause was due to self-neglect, which hadn't been recognised as a safeguarding issue. So one of the responses to this in Manchester was we delivered self-neglect and mental capacity training. We also wrote some guidance for managing the non-attendance of adults. And this was to equip GPs with the knowledge that they needed if they had concerns about a patient, so they knew what to do and how to escalate cases.
1: Which which case reviews did you say was it?
3: Sa- um, safeguarding adult reviews yeah. and domestic homicide reviews. Ah, domestic homicide. Okay. Two types of statutory reviews, yeah. Gosh.
0: Um, So when we were preparing for this episode um, and we've come up with an anonymised and altered case um, just to highlight some of the learning points that are important to talk through with regards to self-neglect and safeguarding issues. So I'm going to be the narrator for this episode, um, so you'll probably be sick of my voice by the end of this. Um, So Mr. Smith um, suffered an acquired brain injury following a diving accident um, quite a few years ago. And we pick up his case when he is in the position where he's living on his own and getting support for various activities, including personal care. He's reluctant to receive support and often quite verbally aggressive towards all healthcare staff. So we start at the point where his carer has made contact with his social worker to explain that they're struggling to provide the level of care that's appropriate for him. And several months later, one of the carers calls the GP and social worker because they've noticed that Mr. Smith has a sore shoulder um, that came on after a bit of an awkward sleep in his chair, but he's refusing to call for help about it. And the carer also reminds him at the same time about the fact that they're struggling in general to provide care for Mr. Smith. So the GP makes arrangements for a letter to be sent um, out to Mr. Smith asking him to contact the surgery if he needs assistance.
1: Yeah, so um, we thought we'd stop the case at that point, and as this is a talk about capacity and safeguarding, um, but also remembering that throughout our training, um, we're always taught to respect patient autonomy. Um, Do you think it was appropriate for the GP to have sent a letter to the patient that um, essentially assumed... He had capacity.
3: Well, in the majority of patients, we can usually presume they have capacity. However, the Mental Capacity Act says that we shouldn't assume capacity if the person's behaviour or their circumstances raise doubt as to whether they can make a decision. Mr. Smith's circumstances were that he had a history of acquired brain injury, his medical and care needs were no longer being met, and other professionals were concerned for his welfare. He hadn't been seen by a GP for over three years. And so really should have been assessed to see if he was able to make the decision to refuse support. So no, in this case, it wasn't appropriate to assume he had capacity. Okay,
1: because it's just been too long. There was too many factors in his case.
3: Yeah, there were too many issues around his circumstances. He needs to be assessed to see could he actually make this decision.
1: When we're thinking about it, it's a good point to kind of stop and actually think, what what do we mean when we talk about capacity?
2: Um. The Mental Capacity Act really talks about um, a two-stage test that we should be applying when we're assessing if somebody has capacity or not. So the first stage is... Identifying whether this patient may have and it 's strange wording they use, but it 's they say an impairment of the mind or brain um, and that can vary so that could be a, for example as Sarah mentioned in this case an acquired brain injury, it could be a stroke, it could be dementia, it could be somebody 's confused due to sepsis so there 's lots of reasons why someone may have an impairment of the of the mind or brain, and then the next step becomes. Is that causing the person to be unable to make the decision for themselves? And in order for them, for us to be confident they have capacity, there's four key points we have to look for. So we have to be sure that the patient is understanding the information that we're giving to them. We have to be confident that they can retain that information long enough so that they can make a decision. The person has to be able to weigh up the information that's given to them, so the pros and the cons, and then they need to be able to communicate that decision back to us. And if they can do those four steps, then the person does have capacity. But if at any point the person is not able to complete one of those steps, the patient lacks capacity. It's quite interesting about the the
0: retention, that they only have to retain the information to be able to make the decision. They don't necessarily need to retain the information long term.
2: Absolutely, because I think it's important to recognise that actually the information doesn't have to be retained for a very long period of time. It's only long enough for that person to then be able to make the decision. So we're not expecting people to remember things months or years down the line, but they do need to be able to retain it long enough that they can weigh that information up in their brain and say, is this the right thing for me or not? And then communicate that response back. So there's different
1: types of capacity. Um, Can you talk to us about that? So we know from looking at our notes that there's one called decisional and executive capacity. Can you
3: talk us through a bit about those? When we assess capacity, we need to think of it in two terms. One is whether or not they don't just say the decision. So they might be able to clearly express the decision, which means they've got decisional capacity. However, can they actually execute or carry out that decision? So when we're talking about that, we're talking about executive capacity, like execute. So in other words, it's not just important to consider what people say, but to observe what they do. And put even more simply, they might be able to talk the talk, but can they walk the walk? So the patient may say they're going to attend the next mental health appointment, for example, but continually fail to do this. And this should ring alarm bells that something isn't right. It's also important to consider that even if the patient has the capacity to make several small decisions, they might not understand the consequences of the sum of those decisions. So, for example, we had a case with an older lady and she chose to sit in the same seat all day without taking any exercise. She wouldn't let her carers come inside and she didn't change her incontinence products. The agency working with it didn't possess an understanding of what could be the eventual outcome of the combination of these decisions, even mm. though her mental health was deteriorating. By the time she was admitted to hospital, it was too late and she actually died of septicemia. So it's really important when we assess capacity, not just to think about whether somebody sounds like they're making a decision, but to think, can they actually execute it? Do they understand the consequence of the sum of, of smaller decisions and can they walk the walk, just not just talk the talk?
1: Yeah, that's really, really useful. I'm thinking of loads of different cases where actually that's made, you know, when something doesn't sit right. You're like, well, you have got capacity, but yeah. But have
3: you? Yeah. And it's going that little bit deeper.
1: Yeah, exactly.
3: Yeah, definitely. Sometimes you might need to assess somebody over a period of time rather than just doing a one shot look at somebody's capacity. You might have to revisit and
2: get to know that person. Yeah. And especially there are people who at certain times of the day might be better than than other times of the day. So it's about considering... You know, Do I go in an evening? Do I go in the morning? Am I better going when there's a carer there? Are they more responsive when there's someone else there? And as you rightly said, we look at fluctuating capacity as well. So it's about trying to maximise being able to assess that patient. What's going to give this person the best opportunity to be able to make the decision for themselves? Yeah,
0: you're right. That's what I was just thinking. I was thinking that it was our responsibility, like you said, to make sure that we're giving that patient the best chance of, of showing their capacity. Okay, so going back to Mr Smith, um, a few weeks later the social worker visits him at home but he refuses to let him in Um, and just to remember at this point the carers are still not able to provide the care that he needs including personal care. So after the social worker has been out to visit, they ring the GP to request a mental health assessment to determine whether or not Mr Smith's behaviours are due to a mental health condition. we then jump to three months later and the social worker gets back in touch with the gp to check on progress as they haven't heard anything back since their request for that mental health assessment as the gp was away it's about a week um after this that the gp phones the social worker back and tells them that there have been quite a few letters sent to mr smith since then asking him to make an appointment
1: at the surgery so um i guess just stopping at this point to say was this enough for the gp practice to have done for mr smith
3: Because the GP knew that uh, Mr. Smith had an acquired brain injury, acquired brain injuries make people more likely to have care and support needs. So the housing staff and the social worker had seen Mr. Smith and they were concerned about him and they'd raised these concerns with the GP. This indicated he didn't need to be followed up. And the GP practice had only sent letters to Mr. Smith asking him to make an appointment. But it wasn't clear if the surgery knew whether the patient was able to read, was English his first language, or did he have any learning difficulties, for example. No other methods of making contacts were attempted. So for a patient who's known not to be engaging with services anyway, there wasn't really enough effort put in to determine that he no longer needed support. For example, they could have considered a phone call, they could have offered a home visit or a joint visit with staff who already knew him, and then he might might have been more likely to engage with the GP.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point about um, not just relying on letters. So um, going back to Mr. Smith, the the GP arranges to go out to visit him, um, but wants someone that knows Mr. Smith's case to be there at the same time, which takes a few weeks to organise. So they get a carer um, to be present that does know him and they go out, but he's really quite aggressive and he won't let them in and says that he doesn't need any help. They try to call him, but he won't pick up the phone. And um, They go round to the side of the house to try and speak through the window but he won't engage um, and they do notice at the same time that he is struggling to move around um, but generally the house is looking quite clean so in the end they go back round to the door and they end up just speaking in that way. The GP goes back to the surgery and updates the social worker and is understandably a bit unsure about where to go next. Yeah, I very much relate to that feeling with this type of case. Yeah, 100%. Um, so yeah, they decide in the end to make a referral to the mental health team to see if there's an underlying reason for his behaviour and to ask them to, to help
1: with the assessment of capacity to refuse care. So whose responsibility is it to assess capacity for these types of situations? Obviously, it will be a bit specific, but talk us through that, if you will.
2: I think, as you rightly said, there's no one size fits all when it comes to that question. There is no one person that you can ever say, this is the person who should assess capacity. Anybody can, in theory, assess capacity. So, And for some decisions, it will be more logical. For example, if it's to do with dressings, it might actually be that the nurse who's doing the dressings should assess the person's capacity to have the dressings or not. If you're doing covert medications, actually, the doctor who's prescribing the medications and saying it's okay to give them covertly, if the person doesn't have capacity, they would be the best person to assess it. Sometimes it is more complex, so you might need some support from, say, a mental health practitioner or from someone more senior to get some advice if it is a difficult scenario. But in general, we would say that. It needs to be someone involved in the person's care and generally it's somebody who's going to be instigating the treatment if the person is found to lack capacity after the end of the assessment that's really useful and I use the word treatment but actually that is there's a broader context to that you know we are talking about care as well so if we're looking at where someone's going to give care if they're going to a residential home or if they're going to have carers coming in actually although we use the word treatment it can be any aspect of the person's health or well-being and in that case actually it might be a social worker that's the better person to assess that because they know more about the packages of care or the placements that are available for that patient.
1: Sometimes we've been involved in ones where it's been about assessing a patient's capacity uh, about decisions about their will, and it should really be to do with the people involved in in the will, like the solicitors and things they they have people specifically for that.
2: Oh absolutely yes, for as you say as as a as a GP, I certainly don't know the ins and outs of the legalities of of what it entails to to make a will, and therefore I'm not the best person to be asking those questions. Someone who knows those details is.
0: Yeah, so it really is the responsibility of everybody to learn about capacity and capacity assessments and how to do them properly, really. Absolutely. It really is. Okay, then. So um, going back to the case, the community mental health team go out a few weeks later and um, Mr. Smith lets them in. They find him in a poor state. Generally, he is unkempt with limited mobility. The house is poorly cared for and there is a lot of mess. He's been incontinent and doesn't look very well. At the end of this case, Mr. Smith required an admission to hospital for medical
1: treatment, but fortunately did survive. So it's clear from everything that we've heard about Mr. Smith's case that things deteriorated. Um, And it would be useful at this point to think about some of the terms that we use when we're talking about cases like these, um, thinking specifically about terms like neglect and self-neglect. So first of all, can you explain what we mean when we say (laughs) self-neglect?
2: Um, so self-neglect really is a it's a very complex topic and it can present for a number of different reasons. And I think the key thing to say is we don't always get to the root cause of what causes self-neglect. Um When we use the term self-neglect, we're thinking of somebody who's not caring to themselves to an extent that it's actually affecting their personal safety or their health. We're thinking about their personal hygiene. We're thinking about them not engaging with medications that potentially could make them feel better. They're not seeking the... access to health and social care needs that they they maybe do need and they're maybe not wanting to attend to their usual day-to-day tasks so they may not be buying shopping, they might not be eating, they might not be getting dressed, um, and they might not be managing their finances properly either. I think as I said, people we don't always find out why somebody is self-neglecting. We don't always find out the root cause. There are certain things that do make it more likely or there are certain causes we have identified. So in Mr. Smith's case, we're talking about a traumatic brain injury. So that's obviously a cause. Um, we look at dementia. We look at also physical illness. So if somebody's got a physical illness that's draining them of their attention span or if they're finding that it's affecting their capability in their day-to-day life, they might self-neglect. You might actually find it's a side effect from medication. So if they've got a reduced motivation, they might not want to do these things and therefore self-neglect. And. Um, And they might have been through a traumatic life change. And again, that's another reason someone might self-neglect. You sometimes hear this term about Diogenes syndrome, which is when that's when we relate to somebody who's got a deteriorating health and ability to look after themselves. And that happens in later life. And that's a more specific situation. And I guess you always have to remember that someone with mental health problems may also display signs of self-neglect.
3: Yeah.
1: And then sort of moving on from that, What do we need to understand about capacity in relation to self-neglect?
3: Well, for someone to be able to self-neglect, self-neglect is often a series of decisions and you've got to actually have the capacity to make those decisions for it to be self-neglect. So for Mr. Smith, he had been making decisions to self-neglect earlier on in the early days of the case when he only let the carers in some days of the week. He didn't always wash his clothes, he didn't choose a good diet, but as time went on, he no longer understood the consequences of his decisions to refu- refuse health and care, and he lost that ability to use and weigh in his decision-making, so he no longer had the capacity to refuse help. Then, later on, when services didn't step in to help him as he needed them to, this would now be reviewed in safeguarding as neglect or acts of omission. Hmm.
1: So, it's all about if they've got the capacity to neglect themselves, then it's self neglect. But if they don't have that capacity, then it's not self neglect, it's neglect or acts of omission. Okay.
3: That's right. So, sometimes you see self neglect on a journey that can become neglect later if the right care and support isn't put in to support that person. Yeah and that's probably
1: key for a lot of these cases is recognizing that change
3: yes and that long term monitoring support and revisiting a case
1: that's quite subtle but very important point so in terms of that case and just generally with self neglect what are the common challenges that we face when we're dealing with it
2: i think every clinician can read this can hear this case really and understand how tricky it is to work with patients who are self-neglecting. He wasn't wanting to engage with professionals. Letters were sent, messages were left. He still didn't want to engage. And that's a common theme we see with people who are self-neglecting. They don't want to engage with health professionals. And it's very, very difficult to work with somebody who doesn't want your help, especially as a busy clinician when you know there are lots of other patients that want your help. It's sometimes very tricky to find the extra resources to try and help this person and to try and find a way in with them.
1: And in primary care, how can we try and find those extra resources? What can we do to try and support someone who who is appearing to self-neglect?
2: I think probably the key thing when it comes to self-neglect is recognise it. Um, As I say, sometimes it's hard to when you're busy, you may not always process what's going on, but it's always good to take that step back and say, this person's not engaging. This person's not coming to appointments. Are they self-neglecting? And identification, I think, really is the key thing it's then about understanding trying to understand what may be going on is there a cause for this has something changed in this person's life that may be triggering this self-neglect mm-hmm. so example looking at the medical history is there a diagnosis that of dementia is there a diagnosis of a head injury which might explain it it's also about looking at protective factors as well so has this person got a friend that they that they work mm-hmm. and they trust with does this person have a good relationship with another colleague so actually Does this patient know your GP colleague better than you? Are they a better person to engage? Or do they let the district nurses in? And if they do, can you team up with the district nurses? Really, when it comes to self-neglect, it needs to be a multidisciplinary approach. Because it's a complicated scenario, because it's very time consuming, the more people that you can get around the table to support this person, the more likely you are to have a good outcome.
1: That's a really good way of looking at it. Yeah. And I gather that Greater Manchester have got some new guidelines the, with the aim of helping. And in fact, as we were booking this uh, appointment to see each other and talk talk about this, I think I've had in my intro at work, one of the leaflets about it. Can you talk us through about the, the non-attendance guidance?
3: Well, We developed it because we wanted to support practices and we know it's a difficult issue and we wanted to give some of the good ideas that we'd seen some practices already using, but we wanted to have equity across the system. So the guidance gives suggestions of the steps we can take to develop our relationships with patients, how we can um, build up that level of trust, how we can share relevant information with other services so if you make a, a mental health referral, for example, reminding you to add on that the patient speaks a particular language, or they won't attend appointments in the morning, or this is the name of their carer who would be uh, enable them to get to appointments. So just some little um, accessibility information guidance to help you make things more mm-hmm. accessible to somebody who might lack motivation in getting there otherwise. Um, It gives ideas on how to make um, appointments more accessible in general. It gives a template for risk assessment when we're worried and suggests how we can work with partner agencies to support people. And it also gives some guidance about when to make a safeguarding referral and when we should consider escalating a case. So for Mr. Smith's case, for example, there would have been a lot in there, obviously, around how he would be reminded whether or not he wants to make contact with the GP, some really good ways of making better contact with him.
1: You mentioned there about the non-attendance guidelines at talking about uh, raising a safeguarding alert. Um, When should we raise safeguarding alerts? Have we got any handy tips about recognising that, the need?
2: So... There are some really crucial points when it comes to raising a safeguarding concern. There are some points where you really can't miss it and you really do need to make the safeguarding referral at that point so you have to bear in mind that somebody who's self-neglecting may still be a very vulnerable person and sadly may be at risk of abuse from others and unable to protect themselves so in that scenario absolutely a safeguarding referral must be made you also need to consider who else is in the house so if there is a child or another adult at risk living in that household then a safeguarding referral must go in Occasionally, you have to think about legal action that might be required. So if, some, if there's a worry of the public interest, so for example, if someone is hoarding to a point where there's a risk of a fire, again, a safeguarding referral should be made. And again, the big one is always if the person is at risk of harm to themselves because of the self-neglect, please make the safeguarding referral. Okay.
0: I think something that commonly comes up is, is the confusion over um, am I supposed to do an adult safeguarding referral, am I supposed to do a social services referral, who am I supposed to tell, is there any advice or guidance around what we're supposed to choose to do?
2: I think it depends on the severity of the scenario and the element of risk that's involved. So for any of the situations I mentioned before, there's a high level of risk and the risk is imminent and immediate. In those situations, absolutely, it must be a safeguarding referral. If it's more of a concern and it, you feel as if somebody needs some more support, but you're not hitting any of those criteria, then a social services referral would be appropriate. Remember, this is a sliding scale. So at some point, it might start off as a social services referral. But if things deteriorate, you may then end up needing to go into a safeguarding referral. Gotcha. Thank you. So that,
1: I think, just about concludes everything we were going to cover. Thank you so much for for all of that. But um, so if we ask you now about what what are your main takeaway messages from today's discussion?
3: Okay. so I think the first thing is that if you're struggling to engage a patient, consider, is this self-neglect? And if a patient appears to be self-neglecting or not engaging, then consider the following. First of all, do you need to assess your patient's capacity? Then think about who is the best professional to build a relationship of trust with the person and be the lead professional? Do you need to call the professionals meeting, a multidisciplinary team meeting to share information and to review risks with other colleagues so you can develop an action plan together? And then finally, do you need to make a safeguarding referral or to escalate the case if it's getting stuck? So these patients are complex. And the main thing is just don't be afraid to ask for help, particularly perhaps from your safeguarding lead.
2: Brilliant.
1: And Becky, anything to
2: add? I was about to say, I don't think I can put it any more succinctly than Sarah <laughs> has. really. She's, she's summarised all the key areas. I suppose I would merely say to clinicians that we understand that these patients are difficult to manage we understand it can be frustrating when you're trying to engage with a patient and it's not working how you want it to I guess I would encourage anybody who's sitting there thinking now what do I do with this patient what more can I do now think about a safeguarding referral think about getting someone else involved to get help
1: Yeah, perfect. And it's really helpful going through because actually understanding the language that we're using and where people fall into, they're quite soft diagnoses. Um, So that's really, really helpful. Thank you so much, both of you.
0: That's okay. Yeah, it's been great. Thank
1: you. Okay. I think that was so useful to speak to Becky
0: and, and Sarah today Um, I think a lot of things have been clarified in my mind that maybe seem obvious but just kind of clicked together um, during the episode and what did you take away Sarah?
1: Yeah I don't remember ever getting any formal teaching on this subject actually so many points or it's lightning bolt moments like I'd mentioned about the whole thing of when does self-neglect become neglect and the whole thing well it's just when somebody doesn't have capacity anymore to look after their own head healthcare so yeah that really hit home for me in terms of a really useful way of looking at it just kind of understanding the definitions but yeah it was nice to cover that and about executive capacity and decisional capacity yeah but can you talk you can talk the talk but can you walk the walk and that's often a problem it is often a problem yeah they're real crooks of the case aren't they they
0: are and like the um the bits about um the sum of decisions
1: mm.
0: being important, not just the individual decisions, because, like you said, that again can be the real crux of some really difficult cases and and that's the issue. Yeah. And also what you say, the the self-neglect neglect, and also differentiating the when to refer to safeguarding and when to refer to social services, that element of yeah. risk assessment that I just don't think's ever really again clicked with me. And what else have I got written down here? Oh, the bit about, it's important to optimize um, the patient's ability to be able to make show that in the best way their decision-making ability um i think it's really yeah. important so the um like becky said you know going with somebody who they trust and going at an appropriate time of day when they're um, going to be at their best self things like that are really important to make sure that are
1: kind of brought in yeah that was really nice that how to manage well section yeah I, th- I thought that was really useful just to kind of treat it as a stepwise type of approach so that it's just so much more of a framework put on all of these quite tricky messy <laughs> situations yeah so like first of all diagnose it recognize self-neglect why it's a problem and why are they self-neglecting and then yeah all those protective factors like you mentioned that's it's just so many things that people with practical minds can kind of think about and it's all that kind of the softer skills of general practice that can make such a huge difference to successfully managing patients yeah um after we'd kind of finished and we were talking a little bit and uh, becky said there at the end that there are often cases where it's been so tricky for so long and and dealing with them can be really demoralizing or really difficult and it can kind of take a lot of emotional energy from you yeah. um so having that backup and kind of recognizing you know if you are if you are at a point where you're saying oh uh, what can i do now that yeah make it mdt that's when to do the the safeguarding referrals if you haven't already those types of things it's, that was really useful yeah no i think there was lots of very helpful and actually practical tips in that episode yeah,
0: yeah for sure um, so if you want to get in touch with us there's a couple of ways that you can do that um, you can send us an email and our email address is primarycarepodcasts at gmail.com and we also have um, twitter and if you want to um, have a chat with us on there or send us
1: some feedback our handle is at pckbpodcast and our survey is as a link in the episode description and thank you for everyone who completes those that's really <laughs> lovely it is great till next time on primary care knowledge boost
0: Hey guys, just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical
1: advice by the general public. This was recorded in Greater Manchester in 2021. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before making treatment decisions. Uh, The content is based on our interviewee's
0: opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the
1: episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.